Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 193. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And I'm happy to be joined today by the person that I believe was actually the first guest we ever had on this show, Mr. Oliver Tazza. (laughs) How are you doing? I didn't know that. I'm doing good. What about you? I'm doing good too. Yeah. In the initial days of the podcast, we didn't really do guests and you and I think Rob Bernacki were actually the first two that we had, but you were the number one by far. I remember we met in Vancouver. This was pre-pandemic. I want to say it was probably around 2019. You had an injury. You were kind of using that time to travel around and meet people and do seminars and you came to Vancouver and that's how we met. So while we were there in person, you stopped by and did a recording with us. And things are quite different now, of course. I'm up here in Vancouver and we're doing this remotely. But that said, though, yeah, you are the first guest we ever had on this podcast. And that was a long time ago now. That's crazy, man. I I find that crazy that I was there on the podcast before Rob. You guys are... (laughs) Well, was it too, you guys had conversation you don't want to put on the on the podcast? Is that why you're going to have them for me? <laughs> no, for some reason, you know, we just never really envisioned this thing as being a, a show with guests at the beginning. We wanted to just talk about ideas. But when you came to town, we thought, man, this is going to be an awesome opportunity to get someone on who knows what they're talking about. And what mm-hmm. I've kind of realized over the years is it's better to have guests on because they are frankly way smarter than me when it comes to jujitsu. <laughs> You're going to get a lot more better ideas if you got other people coming on sharing their stuff. So we do that all the time now. Whereas before, back when you joined us, we weren't really a, a guest show. But things have definitely changed since then. Good, man. I'm happy to hear. Happy to hear about them. Well, thanks a lot, man. What have you been up to in the meantime? I mean, the world has changed a lot since the last time I saw you. You know, it was pre-pandemic when we got together. We That was back when you could kind of just go where you want to do what you want without any headaches. Mm-hmm. It's been a few years, but, uh, and of course, I know that you were rehabbing your injury at the time. How have you yeah. been lately? What have you been up to? Man, to be honest with you, when the pandemic first started, uh, like, you know, you didn't really know what to believe. You didn't you're kind of like afraid, you're scared of the virus, you didn't know who's going to kill you or anything. But it turns out the virus is real, man. I caught COVID. What is it? Like eight days ago, I tested positive. I had fever. It was crazy. I was like, Oh, shoot. Were you okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what happened is I feel like you catch it when your body's a little bit weak, you know, and you, your immune system gets a little bit fatigued or compromised. Boom, I caught it. And uh, it was good, man. I mean, you get a little bit of a fever, what else? You lose a bit of sense of taste. It wasn't that bad for me. Like the symptoms for me have, are like gone. You know, it's been like it lasted for two days and then symptoms were gone. But now like I have these at home tests that I got 
and I keep testing positive. So it's like, I got to stay isolated until it goes <laughs> oh, away. Man. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to be going out, giving it to teammates, you know? Yeah. Like, we have ADCC coming up. So it's like, last thing I want to do is come back and then give it to people and then now they can't compete. And it's like, you know, it's just better stay isolated, do things home, you know, and wait, wait till this passes. Yeah, I had the same thing. I actually just caught COVID around the same time that you did. And it was weird because... Oh, you too. That's crazy. Yeah, it was uh, It was not fun. For me, I had a similar situation as you where I had a generally a very mild case. Mm. I, I was really fatigued, really tired. That was really the only thing I had. And I just kept testing positive. So I had to isolate myself for like 10 days. It really sucked. <laughs> but it's just, it's such a weird random virus. I mean, I got Ooh, it. A bunch crazy. of my family got it. Everyone had totally different symptoms. A lot of the people that I know, especially with the new variant, it's thankfully they've had a, a mild experience, but every once in a while, I, I hear about someone who just has a crazy experience and they just like, they have to go to the hospital or they have to go to the ER and it's totally random. Like there's no way to know what it's going to do to you, whether it's going to be mm. mild or not. So yeah, probably good that you're, <laughs> you're staying in isolation. I'm guessing that the team wouldn't be happy if they all got infected right before trials, Ooh. right? <laughs> no, no, before they had the big show. But you know what? Me, oh, that's right. Before the big show. Yeah, the bigger ADCC is like nine weeks away now. You know, it's getting really close and nine weeks they fly by. You know, like I feel like just yesterday we were in January. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's as good a transition as any, right? Because what we had talked about was stand-up for ADCC. And yeah. I, I love that topic. I mean, I know that obviously this is something you've been working on a lot with your team as you guys prep. I'm a hobbyist and I'm lazy, so I don't do mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. But I love learning about it anyway. And I love meeting guys like you who can bring these lessons to people like me. So with that said, I would love to just unpack what you guys are doing here. You know, in a lot of other rule sets, especially IBJJF, you can skate pretty far without actually really having any stand-up game to speak of, but that is mm -hmm. not going to be the case if you go to Abu Dhabi. So I'd love to learn more about what you're doing with your team. Yeah, so I mean, like uh, a lot of coaches will, will will agree that, you know, the days where you can fall back on the leg and get a quick leg lock, those days are, are kind of gone. You know what I mean? A, there, was a, there was a period of time where you can just pull guard, you know, get the guy um, in a leg entanglement, and even as you're locking your hands to... To get the Finnish people tapped, but now it's different, you know, with the technology, with videos, people can study, you know, people can go on the internet and watch, like, people that had how they're defending legs. So the game evolved, basically, you know what I mean? And one better strategy was, you know, to be on top, because when you're on top, it's harder to, I mean, gonna be harder for the guy on bottom to stop, you know what I mean? And one way to get on top is to take the guy down, you know, or to fatigue him. So, yeah, one thing we've been getting ready for is, you know, stand up, hand fighting, um, getting the guy down to the mat. But it's it's different than like pure wrestling, right? It's it's different rule set. It's a different scoring system. It's different. So you have to adapt. There's different risks. You know, there's a risk of the guillotine. There are no shoes. So, you know, it'll, it'll slip. So there's different kind of strategies you can have that are different than wrestling. And that's what we've been focusing on a lot. 
Right. So if you were to, I don't know, compare the way that you're training your takedown game versus the way that a standard wrestler, for example, would train, what are some of the main differences and the main concerns you guys have discovered? Now, of course, one of them, like you mentioned, is submissions are a real threat. Any sort of botched takedown where you're shooting in can very easily result in a submission attempt on you if you make a mistake. But are there any other main considerations that you think are especially important that, say, a wrestler, for example, would want to adapt if they're competing at that kind of level that you guys are at? Yeah, I would say, you know, you, you see a lot of people shooting, like they'll shoot, reaching, you know, right behind the knee. And then a lot of time wrestlers come down to the ankle, you know, they'll come down to the ankle, they either get their head to the inside or, or they'll drive their shoulder behind the guy's knee and then they'll hold on, they'll shelf the foot. But in, in jiu-jitsu, it's a lot harder because there's no, there are no shoes. So you can slip your foot out, you can limp leg out. And then the more the guy that's on the leg drives forward, the more he's likely to, you know, expose his back. So instead of climbing down to the ankle, you climb up to the hip, right? So it's like you get to the knee, come up to the hips instead, you get, you get your body locks, you get your underhook, and then from there you have a complete, like, so many options from there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess if you're doing kind of a, a traditional jujitsu single, you run and you're going for like the knee, like you said, you run the risk of the other guy doing the, the Captain Morgan. I don't know what you call it where you're from, but that's where we call it, where you kind of turn away and you sort of pose on that one knee and you slip your foot out, which like you said, is going to be a lot easier if there's no wrestling shoes. But I get it. If you go up to the hip, then it's going to be a lot harder for people to hop around and pull that foot free. Yeah, the more you sprawl, the more the, the easier it is to transfer to the hip. And then, you know, get to transfer to your body locks. Now, depending on the wizard, you know, he's going to different, different things you can do depending on his, you know, shoulder positioning relative to his hips, you do different things. Let me ask you a question here, because when you go for, I guess, for lack of a better term, like a traditional single leg, and you're kind of dropping a level to shoot in, and you're trying to pick up their leg and lock up their knee, you're going down a little bit, and that allows you to basically get underneath the person. But if you're trying to lock up next to their hip, you're a bit higher. Are there any concerns or challenges that you guys encounter or find when you're shooting up like that? I mean, how do you clear past a person's hands, for example, and get good access to the hip so you can make that connection? Uh, Clearing hands is something you're actively doing. You know, when you're wrestling with someone, there's always hand fighting. You know, you're trying to get situations where you have control over the head. He doesn't have control over your head. So you work with asymmetrical grips. You can move him around. When you move around, you get reactions. And from there, you have a clear path to the leg, and that, that's how you can pick up your single legs usually. But it starts with the hand fighting, clearing hands, fainting, hand height. You know, you, you want to play between having your hand higher than his or underneath his, getting him to react to clear path to the leg. Right, right, right. Got it. Okay. Do you think, and I just ask this as a, as someone who personally likes this particular type of takedown, but do you think there's a place for things like really low singles if you're competing at that level, or is that just way too risky to try? Uh, low singles, you've seen like, mm, you see it sometimes work at the highest level, but a lot of times you get countered or you get your back taken. Um, you don't, you don't see it as often. Yeah. Um, it can work. I've seen it work. Like some guys have made it work at uh, ADCC, but it usually, you, you can look at it kind of like a stalling tactic, trying to slow things down. Like it's going to be hard to progress usually from there. Get put yourself in the crucifix. I'm not saying don't ever do it. There, of course, there are times where you can, you know, peek out, get to the guy's back. For the most part, it's usually riskier. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, makes a ton of sense. I mean, I personally am a big fan of low singles, but that's mostly because I'm really lazy (laughs) and I'm usually already sitting down on the ground or I'm in turtle or something. And so from there, it's pretty easy to transition into a low single if I can get in range. But if you're Mm -hmm. serious about your stand up, you know, dropping all the way down to the floor for a low single, that's a lot of distance to travel. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of people, you know, go for things like foot sweeps, you know, get the guy off bounce with a a foot sweep. You, You watch... The last uh, W, no, you see Gordon hit a beautiful foot sweep, get the rear body lock. And then from there, the match was pretty much over. My teammate, John Carlo, same thing, nice foot sweep. Nicholas, same thing, who's playing a lot with foot sweeps, harassing the feet, getting the guy, you know, off balance, makes it easy to move the head around. And it just gets, gets the openings, creates openings. You know, you get the guy stumbling, you get the guy, you know, you're fighting his feet with your feet, you're fighting... His hands with your hands, it's, it's something that really been putting a lot of focus on. And it's been paying off. That's super cool because for me, foot sweeps have always been, in theory, one of my favorite types of uh, ways to get someone onto the floor because they're extraordinarily low energy. They don't require, you know, a tremendous amount of athleticism. You can do them against opponents of all shapes and sizes. But in my mind... I had always thought of foot sweeps as being more of a judo thing. And so it's really cool to see that translating and getting used so effectively in nogi grappling as well. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have your body tie-up. There's foot sweeps from everywhere. You can do it from an underhook. You can do it from wizard. You can do it from over-under. You can do it off a two-on-one. You can do it off an over-tie. There's just, you can do it from anywhere, really. And then you can, you know trip or you can make them you know step further than you wanted to different kind of foot sweeps you can combine them make them stumble picking up the leg is a lot easier let me let me dig into this a bit here because this is something i'm always curious about when you're going for foot sweeps so much of pulling that off successfully is getting the kazushi right if you just try to hit a foot sweep from a dead stop you're just going to tap the person on the foot and you're probably not going to move them. So mm-hmm. a big part of the game is you got to get them in motion and then you've got to redirect that foot before it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. I would love to know if you've got any pointers or suggestions for how to do that effectively, especially in the nogi situation, right? Because like I said, I mean, I've, I'm kind of more of a traditionalist here. So when I think of foot sweeps, I'm usually thinking, okay, I've, I've got the guy's sleeve grip and I've got the guy's collar grip, but in nogi, I have none of those things, right? So I've got to, I've got to settle for grips that could potentially be a little bit more slippery. I would love to get your feedback in terms of what some best practices are for foot sweeps when you don't have the advantage of putting on the gi. Uh, well, first thing is you gotta set your expectations, right? You know, if you, if you're hitting, you know, 15% of, of the attempt, you're still pretty good. You know, they're, they're low amplitude means you can use them a lot as like just, you know, a little something to distract the guy with. So, you know, you shouldn't expect to hit every foot sweep every time you try it in a, in a sparring situation. And like I mentioned, when you get the guy moving, you can use different kind of grips. You can use an underhook. Underhook, you can move the guy around as he's stepping. That's when you can trip with the wizard. Same thing. You can apply wizard pressure. He steps, you can trip him. Arm drags, and you can drag and trip from there. So any kind of upper body tie-ups, like two-on-ones, same thing. You see, like, you watch the Vitolos. Uh, they'll use a lot of uh, foot sweeps off the two-on-one, the Russian. So incorporating, you know, these things from all kinds of upper body tie-ups is a, is a good way to do it. Yeah. Now I would love to get your feedback on this because you talked about doing foot sweeps from the wizard, for example, or from an overhook. And the first thing I wonder in a situation like that is if I have an overhook on you and I go for a foot sweep, 
I don't really have anything blocking your access to my leg. Mm-hmm. So this is always a bit of paranoia I have when I go for a foot sweep, which is I don't want to go for a foot sweep and then have the dude just grab my leg and single me. Now, now, granted, like you said, the foot sweep is usually a very low commitment technique. You can kind of spam them. And even if they don't work 100% of the time, you can kind of get in and out of there pretty quick. But when you're going for an overhook, I would love to know, how do you prevent your opponent from just dropping down and just latching onto your leg for a single when you go for a foot sweep from there? Is there any pointer you have for the control in terms of how to prevent that? I mean, you always want to try to time uh, an unweighted leg, you know, a leg that's moving. So the timing also is super important. We get the guy stepping as he's stepping. There's there's a good opportunity to time the, the foot stepping and then brush it past where he wanted to step initially to them stumbling or taking them down. Usually that's one thing we're taught, just get better at timing and unweighted foot. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And when you when you think of foot sweeps, how much variety are we including here? I mean, I when I think of a foot sweep, I kind of think of the standard outside foot sweep where you get the guy stepping forward and then you basically just tap their foot. But do you ever attack it from any other angles or is that kind of the go-to? Uh, you can, uh, you have inside leg trips as well. You know, you hook on the, uh, hook on the inside. Those are really good ones. Actually, Satoshi came, came down, came down a train with us and really leveled up my inside leg trips. Those are, you know, very, very useful ones. And, uh, you, you can, you can divide them into, you know, like a sasai action, like a tripping action. And one where it's like a slipping action, like you're stepping on a banana peel. That's one we like. You can categorize that in, in, these, in these two two parts. So what would be the difference? I'd love to dig into that in the mechanics of the Meech. When we're talking about a tripping sweep versus a uh, slipping sweep, what am I doing differently when I'm doing one versus the other? And how does that impact my opponent? A tripping sweep, usually um, you're facing the guy. You're like almost uh, in front of him. And then uh, this, the banana peel sweep is uh, more like a situation where he's stepping in front of you. You know, you guys looking in the same direction. And as he goes to turn back into you, boom, you take it out. Whereas a Sasai action, like a tripping sweep, you're kind of more facing him. Right, right. Okay. So with a tripping sweep, you're, I guess the way that you would describe that is I'm kind of putting a, like a wedge or an obstruction by their foot. So they just can't get base and they fall over. Whereas a slipping sweep, I guess you're really talking about that slip on a banana peel cartoon motion where the person's foot comes flying up in front of their head, right? That's kind of the main difference. Yes. Got it. Okay. And yeah, the angle would make sense because of course, if you're in front of the person, you're probably going to be trying to put a wedge next to their foot. But if you're beside or even behind them, you can kind of kick their foot out so that it goes flying forward. So that would, I guess, create that uh, banana peel motion you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Nice, nice. On that topic, I mean, are there any other, like I said, I kind of look at those as techniques that, at least in my mind, I always derived from judo. Are there any other things that you think translate from judo into no-gi grappling, or is the gi just that much of a difference that you can't really pull much across? No, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that are similar, like a uh, wizard kick, you know, the uchimara, something that uh, transfers pretty well. You know, like uh, body locks. Body locks are, you know, it's like, very used, utilized in, in judo as well. But they all kind of are similar when you look at wrestling, when you look at judo, jiu-jitsu. A lot of similarities, right? A lot of crossover with where your attacks come from and uh, how you can expose and make the guy vulnerable and then capitalize on it. You see a lot of similarities between wrestling, jiu-jitsu, and judo. 
Yeah, definitely. Is there anything that you would say just absolutely doesn't translate from gi judo that you would just say never, ever use in no gi? No, no. There's, there's a time for everything. Interesting, interesting. Well, I think there's everything has a, has a timing for it. Obviously, you got to take into consideration slippage. But, you know, throws where you're kind of exposing your own back, those like obviously aren't, aren't recommended as much, you know. Uh, you slip, you give up your own back. Even, even like if it's a, a beautiful high amplitude, like it looks nice for the crowd, but you get your back taken as you're doing it. It's, it's not really useful, you know. So the, you know, the judo, there's the, the high amplitude, the throws, they look nice. It's spectator friendly, but. I mean, you can do that in MMA or in Nogi grappling, but you can waste a lot of energy throwing the guy in a judo match. It's done. But if you're doing it in a, in a fight, they, you just spend a lot of energy for nothing. Like the guy's right back up on his feet. So keeping that in mind, maybe if I have to give one advice. Mm-hmm. Now, hey, I got a question on the topic of high amplitude throws. Is there ever home for a suplex? I got to know. Like, let's say you actually manage somehow to get behind someone while you're on their feet. Do you try to take their back? Do you pull them to the ground? Or do you just German them onto the back of their head? Mm, like I said, like high amplitude things, not necessarily the best strategy, especially when you're like doing longer matches. You can suplex the guy. Obviously, again, it's going to look cool. But if the guy stands right back up, now you're the one that looks like, you know, kind of a fool. Now you're tired. You gas yourself out. And uh, the longer the match goes, the more you're going to regret it. You can do things like putting pressure over time, you know, keeping the weight, making the guy have to take heavy steps, get his hands to the mat, keep his hips down, make everything, you know, hard for him. Uh, there's a lot of momentum and high amplitude and it's a scramble. You can't really control how it ends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those situations where because we don't score based on impact like we do in judo, it doesn't necessarily make sense to burn all of your energy on a throw, especially where the momentum could potentially carry the person through and they could actually wind up not being able to control and might even expose their back. We just had Maliki Friedman on the podcast and we were having a talk that was primarily about the gi. And even the same thing happens in the gi. I mean, a lot of classic judo throws have to be heavily adapted if you want to do them in jiu-jitsu, just to prevent that risk of exposing your back. I mean, it's a bit easier to do with the gi on because you can at least latch onto the fabric and you don't have to worry about slippage. But you're right, you can throw the person and it can look beautiful and it can be really crowd-pleasing. But if you throw them with too much momentum, they might just keep on rolling and you can actually wind up giving up your back, which is never the intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember we did like a tape study session with John and uh, the team. And we watched uh, the Trojan and no, Diego Sanchez, I think, good, good scrambler. I forget, I forget the fight, but yeah, it was, he clearly told us like, look, this guy just got launched like three times, but that other guy's gassed. Yep. And then you can see the fight kind of like the momentum kind of change and you can just like take advantage of it. Like if you, you watched the last number one, as soon as Gordon got behind Pedro, there was no suplex, no nothing. He put his, he put his hips down on the mat, walked back into his legs, put pressure on him for the whole match, and then just decided to finish the match whenever he wanted, just by continuous pressure, pressure, pressure. Yeah, that did not seem like a fun position to get stuck in. I do not want to get pressure tapped by Gordon Ryan. <laughs> that seems like it would be a bad day at the office. No, no. <laughs> Honestly, like when I watch these matches, and I mean, I know Gordon like in training is, is different than competition. It's always different, but... I feel like training with him has made me so good at escaping these pins, you know, getting the hell out of there, you know. And I, I feel bad for the opponents that go through it, man. That's all I have to say. It's not a fun place to be. 
<laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Mm. I would ask then, while we're kind of on this topic of, of stand-up, do you have any particular favored techniques? I mean, if it's your go-to, what do, and I granted, I get that you might not want to disclose this in too much detail, but if you can, what kind of stuff do you prefer to do and do you look for when you're standing up on the feet with someone? I like to get the underhooks. You know, underhooks are, are always a, a cool thing to to use because it's, it's so versatile. You, you can fake the legs, you can go to the head, you can transfer to the body lock, you can pull into half guard, you can turn into single leg. Very, very versatile. You know, and then and I feel like, especially if like smaller, weaker, I feel like it's that attachment that you have to someone, it is one of my favorite things, obviously, to look for. Drags too, arm drags, very good. Something that, you know, I use a lot to get to the leg, but you can also use it to get to the head. Moving the guy around, you can combine it with foot sweeps. So drag is also a very good good tool. I like to watch Marcelo Garcia, you know, Marcelo Garcia. If you watch uh, some of his matches, he uses the arm drag, foot inside leg trip a lot, picks up a lot of single legs. And then if you watch Gordon too, like I watch a lot of his matches, you can see the underhook a lot, very nice. Combines it, you know, either snap the guy's head down, you can knee tap. So, yeah, those are some of the things uh, I prefer to watch. I like to watch also guys that hit in competition, right? So uh, things that in Jiu-Jitsu, Nogi grappling have worked. I'm looking at, you know, highest level, best guys, what are they doing? And those are the things they're doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, you bring up going for the underhook. This is always my favorite thing to do when standing up. I'm always underhook hunting. And usually what I'm trying to do is get on the inside so that ideally I have a clear path to my opponent's legs. But you did bring up that, look, going for the overhook is a totally viable option. I have always felt that as a smaller guy, I find for me going for the underhook is just a lot easier because I'm usually lower down than my opponent anyway. And I do find that that allows me to get in really, really close. Am I out to lunch there or do you generally have a preference for underhooks versus overhooks the same as I do? Or is there a different train of thought? I think overhook also has a lot of uh, cool things you can do with it. Very high percentage, very powerful things like hip tosses, uh, rolling into the legs. That's something that's good. You see guys like Jimenez use it for like using it to jump the close guard, jump for arm bars. So very versatile too. You know, you can easily use the wizard, off balance the guy, get to his front head, you know, turn it, turn it into a short offense position. So, I mean, it's also very versatile. You know, I like it a lot. It's just, I feel like it's harder to just get, you know, a wizard. You know what I mean? Guy kind of has to like shoot for your leg, has to be digging for an underhook. So you put a wizard, like it's hard. You know, like in judo, you can just go and reach for the jacket or the belt and it kind of like locks you onto the guy. No, you feel like it's a little bit harder, isn't it? Just put a wizard. So <laughs> usually, obviously, underhook's kind of the first thing you'll be going for. Yeah, I find at least for me, when I get underhooks, it's usually because I was intentionally hunting them and being aggressive about getting them. Whereas if I get an overhook, it's usually because my opponent tried to shoot on me or do something and I reacted by going for the wizard. And at that point in time, I might be one step behind them in terms of action just because I had to do what I did in reaction to them. Whereas I always just like with underhooks, if you're just aggressive about hunting them, you can get in so close and so tight that it makes mm -hmm. it hard for your opponent to escape. There's that clear path to the legs. I don't know. That's, that's just me personally. I think being a shorter and stockier guy, for me, that's always been an approach that I've liked. Do you feel that the whole 
underhook overhook approach changes depending on body type? Do you think that one is better for shorter or taller people? Or do you think they're kind of interchangeable and it's more of a personal thing? Mm, I think you can make good use of, of both regardless. However, you are more likely to get wither kicked if you're shorter and you have an underhook on someone whose hips are very high. You know, they step across, boom, you're getting launched, you know? Yeah. So, but, you know, like anything else, there's a counter, there's a way to, to get around it. You know, you can drop a knee, you can hip in, make sure, you know, you, your shoulders are in front of your hips. There's ways to, to, to win the battle for both guys, you know. There's things we got to look for. Knee position is one of them. Head height is another. But, you know, you can take the guys back from the wizard, from the underhook. The, the same thing the other way around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If I can pivot for a bit, just a question I want to dig into. I would love to know more about your training methods when it comes to how you train stand-up. A lot of jiu-jitsu gyms, especially those that focus on the gi, stand-up is just usually not emphasized to the same extent. And in live rolling, it's usually just completely excluded in a lot of gi-based gyms, right? The focus is almost completely on groundwork. I would love to know how you do things differently, because obviously you guys are actively working on this stuff, but how do you kind of structure a stand-up class or a stand-up session in terms of how you, you learn and apply this stuff? The exact same way we do with ground, with anything else. You know, you just rep it, not for time, not for, like, we're not counting how many times we're repping it. We're just trying to rep it the best way you can, you know, the perfect a repetition each time and uh, then you try it in training and then you slowly start building confidence with the technique just like anything else you know just reps over time nothing no secrets <laughs> darn i was hoping for a secret but of course this don't really exist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i would ask when you guys are, are doing reps this is a question i just always like to dig into what kind of levels of resistance do you expect your training partner to apply like how do you kind of ramp that up and down to get the maximum benefit i mean you, you have to when you're being an uke you're getting drilled on you don't want to you don't want to give the guy something too easily you know you don't want to stiffen up and like Give the guy a reaction that's just obviously going to make it that the guy doesn't, that the move doesn't work. So when we're drilling it and it's like just drilling, we're kind of, you kind of want to, you know what he's trying to achieve. You kind of help him at first and then you make it a bit more realistic. So you're, you're putting the, the amount of tension you, when you're going to hit it and it's perfect. You know what I mean? You put your way in a specific way. Like that's the perfect way to, to hit that move and then you rep it over and over. So. No, no real resistance when we're first learning the move, right? We're kind of trying to help each other out first. Got it. Yeah. I, I love what you're talking about, how it's not about like the number of reps, but it's about the intention behind it and doing things as perfectly as possible and having quality over quantity in your reps. This is a mistake that I made for way too long in my life, which was just focusing on basically watching the clock and trying to bang up out reps by number and by volume. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think I would have been so much better if I actually slowed it down and focused on being intentional about just getting it perfect. And then, like you said, having my opponent kind of turn up the dial a bit to just add a little bit more challenge and a little bit more difficulty. Um, yeah, you can work with different different intensities, you know, like you get tough, you get good conditioning, you know, you put on a timer and you bang out as many leg drags or knee cuts as, you know, as you can. There are benefits to it, but there's ways to benefit more from your training. If you're going to train every day, you may as well be as efficient as possible and get the most return on, you know, the effort you're putting in. 
Right. Absolutely. Do you find, I mean, of course, when you're talking about potential open weight classes, there's a lot of variables at play that you don't get if you're in there with people your same size. Do you tailor your stand-up game any differently if you're going against someone who's much bigger than you or even much smaller for that matter? I presume that just due to the size and the strength and even the height difference, you probably have certain considerations depending on the the relative difference between you and your opponent. Mm, my hand fighting, obviously, I don't want to be hanging too much. I don't want to be playing like a hanging game with bigger, much bigger, stronger opponents. You know, they're... They're gonna tire me out, you know. Like unless like I'm just way better than them at hand fighting, like I should be able to, you know, play more of like an in and out game and a speed, speed based game. You know, clearing size, moving, fainting, just a little bit more dynamic than if it was someone like smaller than me or my size, where you know you can put a collar tie and get heavy and make the guy carry your weight and fatigue him over time. I think with the big guy, I'll be trying to fatigue him maybe in different ways, making him defend different things, you know, making him worry about, you know, the one leg, the other drags, throw by, just a bunch of things that, that don't require, you know, the risk of putting my weight underneath him, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I find that that's always a consideration. I mean, I remember I was drilling uchimatas with a guy who had like a hundred pounds on me and i tried mm. lifting him and he just fell right on me and that was not a fun experience no, <laughs> so I, I i think any type of throw where you have to get under your opponent and load them up on top of you you've got to attack that very carefully if you're doing that with a massive weight disadvantage yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and just moving on to different things chaining them up you know chaining up attacks i feel like this is a, be a good way to you know, get get around that strength and that that heavy that that weight difference. Yeah. Yeah. Now, something you talked about was how you've talked a few times about the importance of training the grip fighting game and how that's so key to stand up. And you mentioned that, especially against a bigger person, you got to be really mindful of that. And this is something I've always said on the podcast, which is that grips dictate position. Basically, whoever wins the grip fight is probably going to get to choose what position happens next. It's just so hard to execute your game if you're losing the grip fight. I would be curious to know how you do that. I mean, what kind of concepts or strategies or, or tools do you guys have when it comes to training just the grip battle and just the process of hand fighting from your feet? The idea I talked about earlier today, you know, creating situations where you have uh, control over your partner, but he doesn't have control over you, you know, asymmetrical grips. Those are things we, we, we work with. That's something we, you know, you can start class with. Just it's low, low impact, you know, it's just, hand positioning that can be like maybe the first first drill you do for the day because very low impact like you're shooting or cranby rolling or you know getting taken down to the hip so that's a, it's a good time to, to work on these you know when you start class it's a good way to end you know it's a good cool down playing with you know having your hands on the inside um, and then you know following up depending on what he's doing does he react by peeling does he react by overtime does he react by digging this underhook here by doing that there so yes yeah, good time to do it i think earlier on in in, in the practice you know a good warm up yeah yeah i also like that idea of going for asymmetric grips that's something that not nearly enough people talk about you always almost want to get an asymmetric advantage if you can and i guess the 
comparison in terms of what a symmetrical grip would look like is for the listeners out there, imagine the classic in the gi judo 50-50 standing grip where you go up and you grab their, their arm fabric, usually around their elbow, and you grab their collar. And then they get the exact same grip on you. So you both have mirroring grips. No one really has an advantage at that point. And the problem that a lot of jujitsu people make when they start doing stand-up is they don't even really think about the importance of getting better grips than their opponent. So when they're on their feet, they will just zombie walk towards their opponent and both people will just sort of unconsciously get the same 50-50 judo grips, which is suboptimal because if you had a chance to get a better grip where you could do something to them and they couldn't do it to you, you're going to be way better off out of the gate right away. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I presume if I were to carve out some no-gi examples, pretty much any type of arm drag is a really good example of an asymmetric control because you're pulling the person's arm across their center line. So they're already at a weird angle and you are already at the correct angle. Do you have any other examples of what a, a good asymmetric grip might look like? Situations where you have control over the head and he doesn't have control over your head. So you're controlling at the bicep and at the collar say for example it can be a situation where you have a cross grip you know like here i'm controlling with my left hand your left hand so i have easy access to the head with my right hand so cross gripping is a good one too you said arm drags two on one is a good one too but yeah that's basically it so i have an annoying jujitsu question what do you do if the person is just really defensive on their feet? So they're just really kind of shelling up. They're doing that annoying thing where they're kind of leaning forward a bit and making it really hard for you to get access to their legs. And they're just kind of not engaging you. I mean, granted, you're unlikely to see this at Abu Dhabi where people are actually confident in their takedowns. But in a lot of other places, people just kind of try to stall it out on the feet and make things difficult for you. I would wonder if you've got any advice for people on how to open up an opponent who's being really defensive when they're standing up against you. I mean, it's going to be hard to always deny access to everything, right? If you're if you're overly defensive about hiding your legs, chances are it's going to be easy to access your your head. If your hands are defensively up, you know you're you're just overly defensive about a guy not getting to your head, then the legs are going to be are going to be exposed and then you can you can always look to expose either one or the other something for people that are like with their elbows in super tight it's easier to get to the head from there isn't it yeah yeah definitely yeah if he's super low his head is if he's super low defending his legs like you don't see often in wrestling seeing people stand up right because the matches are short so you see guys bent over Shorter matches, stance, like it's hard to maintain that stance in grappling, right? If you're low like that and matches get longer, eventually they're going to start posturing up. And when they posture up, picking up single legs become easier, right? So if you see someone overly bent over, make him pay, put weight on his head, you know, try to get his hands touching the mat as much as possible, getting him to want to posture up and wanting him to extend and reach out so he can get control over you and you're not just banging on his head, moving him around. Right, right. So I think putting weight putting weight on someone, making him work, if he's overly defensive, bent over, getting his hands to, to want to reach and extend. Because if, you, if you're grabbing him, if you have the grips on him and he, he doesn't put grips on you, you can move him around, you can snap him down, you can get his hands to the mat, you can push him, you're making him back up, go out of bounds. Uh, when he starts to reach, that's usually a good time. You know, you can duck under, you can throw by, you can do a bunch of single legs. So it starts to open up. But you start, you have to start by moving him around. You know, getting grips, 
like a collar tie or an oversize and boom, start moving around. Nice, nice. What are your thoughts on like jump headlocks and jump guillotines? This is something I've been playing with a lot recently if my opponent is hunkered down. I mean, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm a shorter guy. So if my opponent is concerned about me going for their legs, they'll often lean forward a little bit. And like you said, that exposes their head. So a lot of the time I will just try to latch onto that and go for a sumigaishi or even a standing guillotine if I can get it. Not easy, but I find that once I get that head control, it's so powerful. I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are on like standing headlocks and jump guillotines and things like that jumping into a guillotine maybe not the most recommended thing because you kind of like a guy times it well you're going to go for a ride you know he's going to take mm-hmm. double leg you lift you up that is always my concern <laughs> yeah i mean you, you don't want to you don't want to level change up in that specific scenario usually you want to make him level change by bringing him down right mm-hmm. and once you're able to snap him down and get height advantage and Expose the back of his neck, boom, snap him down. I think it's a great place to, to go for offensive uh, wrestling. It's called short, short offense position. And from there, you can go for single legs, go for double legs, you can throw him by, you can get your arm drag, get to the back. Very, very powerful position. But I wouldn't jump to grab the head. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah, I like your idea of getting them to drop their level first rather than you elevating your own level. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, look, you see, you see, it works sometimes. I'm not saying it never works. I, I think I even saw Marcel Garcia once hit it, like just jump, boom, go for the guillotine. I don't do it. I'm not taught. I haven't like. I, I don't know. I never learned that. But you see people like boom, jump, guillotine, level change, shoot, double leg, super dynamic, looks cool. It's mm-hmm. nice. But I'll try it, man. We'll see. <laughs> if it works, I'll give you credit. It's all you. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch the match, and I fully expect if you if you win by jump guillotine or even pull it <laughs> off, I just want you to say there was this Canadian hobbyist, and I was on his podcast, and he gave me this idea. Guy doesn't compete at all, but it was a really good idea. Fuck, <laughs> man. That's a, you know what? I've, there's there's some there's a jujitsu move that a lot of people are doing nowadays, and it came from a hobbyist in Long Island, and uh, it it trickled, and now every everybody do it. It does it at the highest level, man. It's a, it's a way to clear frame. From when you're passing from split squat or anytime the guy's framing on you from uh, bottom. It's a beautiful way to clear the frame. Some guy from Sarah's BJJ in, in Long Island. What's uh, the move she, called? Now I'm curious. I don't even know. The, I call it I call it the, the route drag because Jason Rao showed it to me. Uh, and uh, it's similar to kind of like an arm drag. It's very similar to arm drag. We end up with an underhook. see a lot of guys now playing around with it, using it, uh, utilizing it to cut that distance from top. Beautiful. It's really good. I think I used it in my last competition. I I had, I used it with Bo Nickel. I had him uh, framing. Boom. You throw it right there. You get chest to chest quick. Huh. I'm, I'm going to have to dig into this because I'm super curious about this thing. I think we worked on it last time. I was in, in Vancouver training with uh, Matt. Oh, really? Matt and the guys, I think, yeah, I think we definitely... Oh, damn it. Was, was this a session I missed? It was. Oh, darn. Okay, well, I'll, okay, I'll follow up offline because I'm super curious to learn about this technique now. I could be wrong, man. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe <laughs> maybe I'm... Con- I mean, yeah, you can definitely reach out, but I think... Eh, I'm not sure, man, because I've been to, I've been to Vancouver twice now, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been, like, twice. It was actually it was after ADCC I came down the first time, no? Was that the first time? Uh, time flies, man. I don't even remember. I can barely remember what I was doing last week, let alone like three years ago. You got a better memory than me. You were in isolation, no, last week? 
Last week I was in isolation. Yes. So actually, I guess I can remember what I was doing last week. I was doing nothing. It's crazy, man. Like, I can't believe we got hit with it at the same time. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is really weird. I, I think there's just a big crest going on right now where everyone's getting it. I mean, I, I think we're just going to have to, like, that's going to be life going forward, right? It's just like all of the other viruses. Every few months, there's going to be a big wave and it's going to suck for all of us. But yeah, it, it definitely wasn't fun getting it, I think, for sure. No, question. Were you going through like a phase where it was like hard for you? It was rough for you? Like you had to exert yourself physically more than you usually would like is there like additional stress or like would you say like you got it because this 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 happened I think I was probably just exposed. I was off on vacation with my family and there were a lot of us all together with a lot of strangers. So I, I think for me, it was less about that my immune system was compromised and more just that I had just exposed myself to a bunch of different people that I normally wouldn't have. Mm. I don't know enough about the, the, the science there, but I think you are someone in the audience do write in and tell me if I'm wrong here. I might have to fact check this, but I think you are right that if you're, if you run down, and your, you know, your energy levels are lower than usual. You could be in a situation where your immune system has a harder time fighting stuff off. I think mm. there is some truth to that. Let me verify that. And if it's not true, I'll cut it out of the podcast, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right. I think so, man, because like for me, when I, when it first hit me, I thought it was, I was having like a, like a heat stroke because mm -hmm. I was in Vegas a couple of days before that. I was in Vegas. I was cutting weight with the guys and we were like, you know, cutting a lot of water weight. The day before, we were in the heat. We were driving with the windows up, no AC. Like That could have done it. In the Las Vegas, I thought that's what it was. You know what I mean? And then we cut weight, and then I come back to Austin, and it's really hot during summer. It's insanely hot. You can, you can fry an egg on your windshield easy. Yeah. You'll have a delicious. But then I, I go to the ER because at night, man, it was crazy. Like The fever, I was like, man, this is intense. Like, where did that come from? From, oh, from Yeah, from absolutely nothing. I'm teaching. I'm I had a great session. I had two two sessions that day, and then boom, hits. But uh, yeah, it's crazy, man. I mean, I feel like we're doing the the right thing. At least you know, we're isolating. We're, we're not spreading this thing. Yeah, that's the responsible thing, right? I mean, you're you're doing the best that you can there to keep your partners and your your buddies and the people around you from getting infected. So I mean, you it's, have to. That's just the protocol now. If you know you have it, yeah, come on, yeah, you don't want to. I feel like I'd have to be a real piece of shit to knowing I have it just going out and doing jiu-jitsu like if I'm doing something else I get it but if you're training jiu-jitsu you're chest to chest you're yeah. ear to ear you're like literally breathing in the guy's it's face it's pretty gross yeah, that's what I'm saying <laughs> that's what I'm saying man and like even even getting back from me I'm gonna have to get back like I don't know if I can go back to 100% right away I can have to ease my my immune system back into it I don't know we'll see We'll yeah, I've, I've been trying to figure this out too. When I got it, I tried to just take it really easy and not tax my system anymore. Mm -hmm. I have a tendency when I get sick to overdo it and try to get back to the gym way too early. And then I re-aggravate it and I feel worse afterwards. And so I, I decided when I got this thing, I'm just going to rest. I'm going to try mm -hmm. to rest up and mm -hmm. just wait for it to clear my system and try to try to recoup the right way. And so far it's been okay. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard people who have stories like yours where they have to go to the hospital. Fuck that sucks. I'm glad you're yeah. okay though. But yeah, I, I agree with you, especially if your partners are, I mean, and this isn't even really just a COVID thing, but man, like I guess a public service announcement 
announcement for anyone. If you're training with high-level athletes who have to perform, please, please don't show up to training sick. You really don't want to get them sick and fuck up their match. And you know, please. Just- Yeah, please. Good. ADCCs, like I said, it's nine, nine weeks away. I'm like, to be honest, I'm not like panicking, but it, I'm happy it's happening now and not like I'm not catching it like right before because that would have that would have been a bummer, man. You know, having absolutely having to drop that weight without having to like being able to train or anything and like having to I don't know. I feel like technically I'm sharp, I'm ready to go, but physically I feel like thank God it's happening now and not like closer to to the competition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know where you're coming from there. You're lucky though, I think in terms of the timing, you're right that probably nine weeks out, I mean, you're that's probably ample time to get back into the swing of things. And also probably, you know, your immune, I granted talking out of my ass here, not a scientist, but your immune system will probably still be primed at that point. So mm-hmm. unlikely you'll get infected again. So man, I, I guess that if you're going to get COVID for you, the timing here was probably as good as it possibly could. Perfect. Get. Yeah, man. It's like, it was like meant to be almost for real. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's how, sometimes you have to look at things that way, man. If you're not looking at things, you're not finding ways to look at things that way. Sometimes when you get hit with things back to back to back and you don't have like a that good mindset, you, you things can like go south for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was uh, talking to, I don't know if you know him, uh, but Nick Perler, the head coach at Perler Wrestling Academy in the States, mm. one of the bigger, the bigger franchises down there. And we nice. were doing a series with him on our premium service, uh, kind of deconstructing his method. And one of the things he talked about is that if you want to hack your mindset, you need to learn to look at everything that happens to you as a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how, how bad it is, if you can find a way to reframe everything as a good thing and as an opportunity to improve or to learn learn or to recover or to get better that ability to kind of reframe these things is just so key because i mean fuck otherwise if you can't deal with that and you can't roll with the punches you're just going to be constantly deflated and depressed and that's way too common in our sport already right i mean so many high level athletes are just a mess because there's so much pressure involved in that kind of career i think that learning how to just roll with the punches and be positive is is just a very underrated important skill you have to, man. You have to, because it'll affect you physically. Like, if you don't do it, you framed it very nicely, man. Like, yeah, you have to be able to interpret everything in a positive light, man. Uh, otherwise, like, why me? Oh, my God, poor me. This, that. this is not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. Hey, I got a question for you on the topic of mindset then. Yes, sir. I would love to know if you guys do any mindset work or mindset coaching, because this is something that... I think almost anyone can immediately benefit from even people who don't compete. One of the things that I love about talking to high level competitors is these people do probably more rigorous mindset coaching and training than most people in the world. And you can learn a lot of transferable skills by just talking mindset with high level coaches and competitors. Is this something that you guys study or or do at all, whether it be independent or as part of the group? I would just love to know if that factors into your training at all. Does it, do we sit out and do like, individual sessions with John, like about our mindset and all things like that. No, but we do tape study sessions, for example. We do strategy. We do tactics. We do, obviously, body language, things you show, things you don't show. Yeah, John talks to us about the things that, you know, are going to be of use for us in 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 a competition, you know, when things get hard and rough. You know, how you can, your posture, you know, even if you're tired, like showing good posture, don't show you're tired, don't show it on your face that you're pissed off or frustrated. You know, staying cold out there. That's uh, something that, you know, we're taught. Mindset, like, he expects us to kind of get there motivated on our own, man. You know, like, we all have different reasons to do this, to be pursuing this at the highest level. 
he expects us, he expects us to come in shape and confidence. It'll come from training, man. The positive experiences you're having, hitting the move over and over, sharpening your game, putting your game to the test, putting every aspect of your game to the test, you know, having these positive experiences in, in training with different training partners. That's going to do it. You know, you're going to, you're going to show up ready, provided you have a, a good peak to the competition. You're going to show up ready. You know? Yeah. Well, that is actually a good lead in into the last question I got here for you. And again, related to stand up. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for people who don't have confidence in their stand-up, whether it be that they they hesitate to pull the trigger or they're just afraid to get up onto their feet? I mean, this is particularly common in, I guess, what you would call traditional jiu-jitsu gyms where so much of the work is on the floor and most people put barely any time into stand-up. The problem that happens that I find is... If you start your jujitsu journey like that, where you train at a place that doesn't really do stand up, it gets pretty hard to start integrating that in later because your mindset is already kind of solidified a bit. So if you're someone, for example, out there and maybe you train at a gym that doesn't do great stand up and you want to start doing that stuff, but you're just, you hesitate, you're gun shy, you're passive, you're afraid. Do you have any, any pointers or suggestions for people to get, not just to improve their confidence, but actually to get better about training and integrating their stand up into their game? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it'd be very useful thing. Kind of mentioned it earlier, like to start training or to end it, ending it, doing extra hand fighting reps, doing extra, like I said, extra hand fighting reps. You know, learning how to have asymmetrical grips, having situations where you have control over the head and he doesn't have control over your head, getting situations where you have a crossroads, and from there, working, up moving the guy. Practice moving the guy. Get a grip and move the guy right away. You don't have to do it at 100%. You can play around with your with your partner, you know, at a very light, very light rate, two and two, you know, three and three. And then as you guys get more and more reps, maybe put a bit more resistance. So it's not, there's not always that risk of, oh, I have to shoot, put my neck and the risk of getting choked or falling body weight. Just Light working, hand fighting, getting to the inside, the early stages of the, of the takedowns, you know, getting really good there. I feel like you can spend time, slow impact, it's safe on the body, you're working, you're going to get good return from it. Yeah, I think that, and again, this is probably advice mostly for hobbyists or for new people, mm-hmm. or maybe just people who are new to athletic endeavors. If you're afraid of doing something like stand up, one of the best ways to get unafraid is to find a way to make it fun. And what you brought up there, that whole keep it playful approach of, you know, keeping it light, keeping it, you know, not necessarily competitive, but just to get comfortable with the idea. Once you start doing that, then it becomes a lot less scary. And usually, as with many things, the first step is often the hardest. So once you get the ball rolling on that, it's a lot easier to keep going. I mean, that is the jujitsu experience in a nutshell, right? Like it's, it's really hard at the beginning, but if you can overcome that hump, it's not that hard to just keep doing it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm, exactly, man. I know people associate wrestling with being exhausted. It's rough. It's a grind, but it doesn't, you don't always have to go all the way to that point, you know, of exhaustion. You wrestle, keeping it playful. Obviously, you can build up to a higher intensity. I used doing that with teammates back in Puerto Rico. We put a timer. We just play fight, you know, play hand fight. And uh, it would turn into like 15, 20 minutes nonstop playing around. It's a very like nice workout almost, you know, just like breaking a sweat, getting your brain working and just proving your skills. 
Nice, man. Well, hey, I greatly appreciate all of the time here, buddy. Before we tie this up, any closing thoughts, anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't get to yet? Well, I think that kind of encompasses like pretty much what we'll want to talk about, play around with it. Nothing comes overnight, you know, put some time into it and you'll see results. Wow. Amazing, man. Well, thanks a lot. And hey, if people want to follow you, if they want to check out any of your content or material, how do they go about connecting with you? How do they go about following you, buying your stuff, whatever? On Instagram, you can find me at Taza Garami. Facebook, there's Oliver Taza. You can find me, reach out. I'll do my best to get back to you know everyone, everybody that reaches out. And then uh, that's about it, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for making me have to think uh, deep and test my uh, <laughs> test my understanding about the things we went over, man. It was good. <laughs> well, I love conversations like this because, I mean, I am a professional hobbyist. I do jujitsu for fun. I got into it as a hobby, and it very quickly took over a big part of my life. But, I mean, I don't train it anywhere near as intensely as people like yourself. And so I love these conversations because I just get so much value out of it. And I know that people in our audience who are in the same boat as me do as well. And hopefully, you know, if there's one thing I've learned from having a five-year-old is that sometimes having someone who just asks you a whole bunch of dumb questions really makes you think and you can actually learn a lot from it. So Mm. I I hope this was a good experience for you too, because I sure learned a ton. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I kind of, not envy you, but I think it's a nice thing to do it and keep that curiosity and fun despite like you call yourself a hobby but it's still like you're still training you know sometimes maybe even more than guys that do it for a living you know what i mean so it's nice man to keep the the, that curiosity awesome well thanks a lot buddy i greatly appreciate it and um, Mm -hmm. probably worth pointing out to the listeners if we're plugging stuff if you want to check out the next level up for bjj mental models i say this every episode but i highly recommend looking into bjj mental models premium it's our paid service in addition to floating the show and being the thing that allows us to do what we do it's also where you can get at this moment over 50 hours of exclusive instructional content with people like john thomas and margo ciccarelli i i talked earlier about nick perler from the Perler Wrestling Academy. We're doing an amazing premium series with him right now on mindset, especially important because, man, when it comes to having a tough competitive mindset, wrestlers are just amazing at that stuff. So definitely recommend giving it a shot. Also, there's a video review service there. If you're part of that, we will provide remote coaching for you and review your video feedback. You get to be part of our awesome community. Really, it's a great package. I always get told by people that I I sell this too soft and too friendly, so I will be intense this time. Sign up, do it now, drop everything, bjjmentalmodels.com, do it. There you go. There's my hard sell. (laughs) All done. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Oliver. I'll let you go, man, but I greatly appreciate it. And best of luck on the recovery, man. And I look forward to seeing you compete. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me and uh, look forward to the next time we chat. Yeah, amazing. And of course, to everyone else out there, thanks to you as well. Greatly appreciate all of the time and attention from everyone who hangs out with us and talk to you next week. Take care.